Hello to all our listeners out there within hearing range, whether you're listening to us on the radio or on your iPod or over your computer. Welcome here, and we're glad you've chosen to spend a few minutes with us. My name is Dan Dick, and I welcome you to another episode of Church Matters. It's summertime when many regular church attenders are vacationing and congregations experience a restful lull in their usual busy activities. Some folks will take a break from church or take an opportunity to visit another church and experience another congregation. To that end, we're going to bring you something a little different this summer by bringing you a couple of sermons preached in the past year in a local church. Today's episode is called Hardcore Christian and was presented by Linda Lowen, an active member at Home Street Mennonite Church during Lent 2011. Linda grew up in the church, is trained in social work, and has provided lay leadership at several levels in her congregation. She's married to Eldon and has two school-age daughters. Linda Lowen retells the entire story from John 9 in her own words, but here's a short scripture excerpt just to prod your memory. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Then he went and washed and came back, able to see. Now, here's Linda. Not long ago, I was having coffee with a friend, a woman of profound faith, and I was explaining my growing sense of attachment and devotion to God, to the person of Jesus. And she looked at me and she said, you're hardcore. You're a hardcore Christian, Linda. And this has stayed with me. The idea that I could be hardcore in my faith, passionate, resolute, able to be counted as a willing and eager disciple, it has its appeal. It also brings with it a fair amount of trepidation because I know myself and I know how deeply flawed I am. John's telling of the story of the healing of the blind man, which was just read so well for us in its entirety, is straight up good reading and good listening. It's dramatic action that moves along in a gratifying way. It's an easy storyline. And the editorial comments that John provides explain things that we could not possibly figure out on our own. The dialogue is peppy and it's incisive and the action is also easy to visualize. And I'm glad we heard the story whole. I was very tempted actually to say I didn't think I needed to preach. I think that story stands alone but I am going to preach. So the man is healed by Jesus, and then he is questioned by the religious leaders. And after an intense argument, the man is evicted from the temple, and Jesus comes and finds him. From the time of the man's healing, Jesus has been out of the picture. Now, Jesus, we find, comes and seeks out the man. And it's here I wish to stay for a bit, because I believe that in this part of the story, we find a pivotal revelation of the nature of Jesus. The man has been evicted from the temple because he told the truth about who healed him. Now, different sources say different things about what this eviction would have meant for the man. 
Some say that it meant the equivalent of excommunication from the entire Jewish community, that he was banned for life from temple and from their faith community. Others say that it will have been temporary, but in any event, it was some sort of a shunning. And the fear of it was enough to keep his parents from admitting to it any knowledge of this Jesus who had just healed their son. But the healed man, as we've just heard, has a completely different response when asked who Jesus is. The religious leaders ask him repeatedly, how did Jesus heal you? And he answers them again and again. And until finally he says, I've told you over and over and you haven't listened. Why do you want to hear it again? Are you eager to become his disciples? And that got a laugh from us, which told me that we were all listening to that story. That's funny. What temerity. What is this man, why is this man so cheeky? Why is he so reckless in the face of authority? Well, he was blind. Now he sees. Everything, and I mean everything, is different for him. He's in the throes of reckless abandon. The kind of, that we usually see in people in love, or in grief, or in terror, or in a rage. But if you can believe it, the story gets better. The leaders say, you may be his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We have no idea where this man even comes from. And the healed man answers them and says, this is amazing. You claim to know nothing about him, but the fact is he opened my eyes. It's well known that God isn't at the beck and call of sinners, but listens carefully to anyone who lives in reverence and does his will. That someone opened the eyes of a man born blind has never been heard of, ever. If this man didn't come from God, he would not be able to do anything. What the healed man is doing is he's throwing in their faces the teachings that he's had at their feet. He says, everyone knows that God works through godly people. How can you wonder where this man's power comes from? How can it come from anywhere except from God? And like the schoolyard bully who can only win an argument by force, they say to him, you're dirt, and they throw him out. So, resolute, passionate, hardcore, this healed man is all alone. He's all alone with his convictions and with his changed life. He's out on the street. And then, Jesus comes and finds him. Jesus' opening question is typically disconcerting. When you've read um, Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew, and then you go back and reread the Gospel, you will find that most of Jesus' opening lines are disconcerting. And he says to the healed man, do you believe in the Son of Man? It will have made more sense to him than it might make to you or I. He had probably heard of the Son of Man. The Jews were awaiting such a one that would come and bring God's life and God's judgment. So, ever honest, the healed man says, point him out to me so that I can believe in him. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. Don't you recognize my voice? Because remember, 
the blind man has never seen Jesus. Once the healed man knows that this person in front of him is the same person that healed him, his answer is swift and absolute. He says in the version that I read, Master, I believe, and worshiped him. So here's what we see in Jesus in this part of the story. This is what it reveals to us. Jesus comes to the man as he comes to each one of us. In our times of separation, in our times of reckoning, and he asks us disconcerting questions. Do you believe in me? Are you my disciple? Who do you say that I am? Do you love me? Whom will you serve? Why do you weep? Why are you looking for me in a tomb? Have you not heard? Have you not seen? Do you not understand? It's been told you from the first. Do you not know? How do we answer these questions posed by our Lord? The mystery of faith is that we have to have it in order to see things. It, it, is not, it is not inevitable that we will see. This miracle, the miracle of the healing of the blind man, the man blind from birth, is so big that you would think everyone had to believe, but apparently not so. Further on in John's Gospel, Jesus addresses this very problem when he says to the Jewish leaders, I did tell you who I am, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify to me. And again, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. So, clearly, we have a choice. We never have to believe. But without belief, we will never see. Jesus tells the healed man that he is the light of the world. Goodness, the blind man knows this, doesn't it? Doesn't he? If ever there were a ready heart, it is his. But the belief is still his choice. This chapter shows us the progression of his understanding of Jesus' identity. First, he addresses him as rabbi when he first meets him. Then, when he is questioned by the Pharisees, he says he is a prophet. But finally, once he sees Jesus, recognizes him as the one who heals him, he calls him Master. In his commentary, Johnson says, The first tentative step in walking by the light of the world is walking by whatever light we have. The story of healing of the blind man is not a faith healing. The man born blind did not believe in Jesus as master, the Christ, the son of man, when Jesus rubbed the mud on his eyes and sent him to wash. 
He did not believe in Christ's deity when he scrubbed the mud off in the pool of Siloam and was instantly able to see. Sighted and healed, he did not know who Jesus was. But he walked in the light he had. He could only resolutely and passionately tell the truth about who had healed him and how. He did not deny it. It was too big. Even at risk of losing his place in his community at Temple, he still could not deny the one who had healed him. So he walks forward in whatever light he has. And Jesus meets him. Jesus meets him and gives him the chance to see even more. Indeed, Jesus reveals himself fully to the man. He says, I am he. This is how you become hardcore. The path opens up before you and you take a few tentative steps in the light that you have. Our faith increases by our doing, not by our moaning about how God does not reveal God's self to us, nor how much more easily faith comes to others because they have received more blessings or clearer signs or a greater legacy of faith in their family. Faith comes to us by placing one foot in front of the other in God's good light. We need to remember as well that we are not alone on this journey. I used to see Jesus arguing with the Pharisees and other religious leaders as a sort of never-ending dialogue, one in which the Pharisees' blindness was contrasted against Jesus' brilliant miracles, parables, his groundbreaking, soul-shaking work amongst the oppressed, and that it really showcased arrogant stupidity, a cautionary tale, as it were. And I still think that. But now I see much more. Jesus is forever enjoining them to see him for who he really is. He's badgering, hectoring, pleading, scolding, berating, all for the purpose of urging them to the light. He knows their blindness and its cause, their reliance on their own standing, birth, track record, authority, he sees and understands the traps they have caught themselves in. And that is why he attacks those traps so vociferously. He says, God could make these stones into children of Abraham if he wanted. He's trying to rattle them so bad that they really see what is right in front of their eyes. He wants everyone to believe, everyone. The Pharisees, all of the ruling elite, everyone. God is not satisfied that any should be lost. And so Jesus hectors us, badgers us, pleads with us. He is not satisfied that any should be lost. Not me, not you. So faith comes from stepping into the light, from walking in whatever light we have. What does that actually look like? 
There's a saying up on the wall outside a staff person's room at CMU, and I read it each time I go by. It says, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant, don't kill them. We start with the agreed upon and the obvious. But we have to walk into it. We cannot turn aside and then wonder why more light was not given, why Christ did not reveal himself to us more fully. We've been taught to love one another. Although even in this simple statement, we can find times when we are genuinely confused as to what the loving action might be, for the most part, we really know. Do that. Do the thing that you know for sure to be loving. You'll get smarter about the gray areas as you go on. They'll look less gray as you mature, as you walk in the light. We're taught to give a portion of what we have away. Again, we could get stuck in how much exactly and to whom, but ultimately, we know that we need to give generously. So, go on and give, and more understanding will be given as to how much and to whom. You won't get the insight with your wallet closed. We are told to pray for those who hurt us. Seriously? Okay, through clenched teeth, I pray for those people who have hurt me, those people I don't like. Secretly, I think God likes me better than them. And God sees that I'm a nicer person, but I pray for them anyway. And curiously enough, over the days and the weeks and the months, something happens within me. I find myself able to imagine something good happening for those people when I pray. I almost want to hear good things are coming to their lives. And then comes the day when I do want good in their lives. Me, selfish little me, I want what is best for them. And I am freed from the hideous yoke of hate and I am free to love them and to let the wrong go. We know we're supposed to read the scripture. Write it on our hearts, on our foreheads, on our doorposts. Teach it to our children as we lay down and as we rise up. We know. And for some of us, that's the bit of light we have no more. Just the intellectual understanding that we are supposed to read the Bible no pull to do it, no reasonable explanation for why, nothing to draw us there. Just the fact that it's supposed to be a good thing to do. Well, do it. You won't understand why if you don't do it. You won't get more light if you don't use the light you've got. Scratching your head about the relevance of scripture to your overly busy, modern-driven life is not going to increase your understanding of the place for God's word in it. You will not be convinced in a vacuum. That's not the nature of God's revelation to us. Not to anyone, ever. 
Go with what you know for sure is the right thing to do and see what unfolds. In my own torturous path to daily devotions, a path that I am still on, I have discovered some pretty alarming things. The Bible story has a beginning and a middle and, yes, an end, sort of. There is cohesion to the entire story. There is a prevailing theme. It's redemption. And the Old and New Testament are part of the same story. The history of the church, of this church, is the story of Israel. We're Abraham's children. Every story in the Old Testament is our story. God has a plan. It's unfolding. And the church is one part of the continuous whole. Jesus' life on earth was the literal and symbolic fulfillment of the prophecies and the covenanting outlined in the Old Testament. And when the Bible tells you something that seems irrelevant, it's not. Today's gospel story takes place during the Feast of the Tabernacle. That's relevant. The Jews understood this feast and the symbolic importance of Jesus telling them that he was the light of the world. None of these things are coincidences. This is a finely woven tapestry, so intricate and precise, a lifetime is not long enough to see how all the threads work to form the whole. But they do. We do not have a slapdash, bizarre, unthinking faith. We have an elegant and eloquent story of God's love and redemption written down for us to understand and to ponder. But if we don't read it and just have casual encounters with the scripture on Sunday mornings, it will continue to seem disjointed, unlikely, and slightly offensive to our superior intelligences. It is only in learning what the scripture actually says, what it actually is, that it takes shape before our eyes. We see then but only because we have walked faithful to the light we have had. We are called to be hardcore Christians. Our master meets us along the way, intercepts us when we stumble alone, asks us if we love him, and reveals himself to us as we follow the light that we have. We can be passionate, resolute, eager, and willing disciples. Our faith will grow as we act. We will be met by our Lord. These promises are sure. Amen. That concludes this special sermon episode for this summer Sunday. We'll air another terrific sermon next month. If you've heard an especially fine sermon in your church and you'd like to share it with our listeners, send a good quality recording of it to churchmatters at mennonitechurch.ca. We can't promise we'll air it, but we do promise we'll listen to it. Thank you to all our listeners wherever you are. I invite you to support the ministry of Church Matters with a gift. You can give through the mail, in person, or over the phone at one 866 or online at MennoniteChurch.ca. My name is Dan Dick, and you've been listening to Church Matters, where our prayer is that you will be called, equipped, and sent 
to be the church in the world today. Tune in wherever you are, and thanks for listening. See you next time. As you go out from here, may the Lord go with you. The face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living. Salt and light as people of the way.